I believe that what we do as women in the privacy of our own minds is the single greatest determinant of our lives. I'm Emma Title, and you are listening to the Women Today podcast, where we are unpacking and investigating the new female psychology. I am a psychotherapist, coach, and teacher who is passionate about women's internal and external freedoms. You are in the right place if you want to hear in-depth stories about women's lives. On this show, we dig deep into the minds and hearts of women to understand what it really takes to heal, to grow, and to experience psychological freedom so that we can create lives of authenticity, fulfillment, and contribution. This is a place to receive nourishment, inspiration, and guidance as we continue to show up for the complexity and nuance of our lives as women. I'm so glad that you're here, and let's get started with today's episode. Hi, and welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the podcast. I'm really excited to share today's guest with you. Sue Deagle is the Senior Vice President and Chief Growth Officer for a defense contractor specializing in operating U.S. military bases around the globe. Her responsibilities include setting strategy, driving revenue growth, and leading merger and acquisition activity. She has worked in the federal contracting space for 30 years and is passionate about serving our nation's soldiers, sailors, and airmen in performing their missions. She also co-chairs her company's Diversity Inclusion Council, supporting women, minorities, and veterans at her company. Sue believes in work-life integration and the same sense of purpose and values she brings to her professional responsibilities are evident in her personal life. She lost her beloved husband of 18 years unexpectedly several years ago and has found her personal meaning and purpose in leading her family, two incredible teenagers, and all of those she comes into contact with by sharing her story of transformation after loss. Sue believes in the mystery of life, the power of friends and family, and that through fully embracing loss, we become more alive. After work trips to the Middle East, Europe, or Asia, Sue is grateful to return home to the woods and streams of her home in Virginia to recharge. So as you can tell, Sue is a very dynamic and multifaceted woman. I actually met Sue this past winter when I was at a writing retreat at Kripalu Center for Yoga and Healing Arts with the incredible author, Danny Shapiro. And we were both there because we were interested in learning about writing memoir. And the first night at Kripalu, I was sitting next to Sue. Uh, Serendipity had it that we encountered each other. I was immediately struck by her presence and she just had this energy and a twinkle in her eye that really impressed upon me her depth and her presence and the ways in which she's really excavated her own mind, body, heart, and soul. And as I got to talk to her more, I learned about her story of her husband's death and how that has transformed her and her understanding of life. And I really wanted to have her on the podcast so that she could share her story with all of us and shed some light on an area that can be really, really hard for us, the areas of grief and loss and impermanence, especially with those we hold most dear. So as always, you know, Sue is going to be sharing her story. And I just want to say that if you are somebody who has experienced a major death or grief or loss, especially recently, just be kind to yourself as you listen. Everybody's story is unique and Sue has an incredible message to share with us and it's her journey. So take what works for you and of course consider that you are unique and you have your own way of relating to your grief and loss and that is just as valid and worthy and important as Sue's. So without further ado, here is Sue Deagle. Welcome, Sue. I'm so happy to have you here today. And I just really appreciate you taking the time to be with us on my podcast and to share your amazing story with our listeners. I'm thrilled to be here, Emma. I really appreciate the conversation. Yes, me too. 
So I know we have a really big opportunity today to get to learn about you and the incredible journey of transformation that you've been on in the last several years of your life. And before we get to all of that, you know, big, bigger content, I always like to start out by asking my guests on this podcast to share a little bit about your early life as a girl, as a young woman, and sort of maybe some of the defining moments or stories or themes that were going on for you as a young female and, and what that period of time was like before your kind of full-blown adulthood. Yeah, fantastic. I I love to think about this. I was just actually talking to my dad a little bit about this earlier. So I grew up um, in very rural Western Pennsylvania in steel country. And uh, my parents were very young parents. I I have an older sister and a younger brother. So I'm in the middle. And uh, they were married when they were 19 and 20, right? So um, they were kind of figuring it out as they went along. But the beauty of it, when I reflect back on, on what they accomplished in raising the three of us was there was never a feeling in my household like uh, women did this and men did this. I mean, at all. My dad was the breadwinner and my mom was a stay-at-home mom, but she was also going to college at the same time. And, and my dad still you know, did everything around the house alongside her. And we just never were meant to feel that there were gender roles. And my favorite story to tell about my dad was my older sister. He wanted her to play baseball because he was an athlete. And at that time, there were no softball leagues around. So he took her to the little league um, place in our town, to the, to the league. And he said, okay, you know, this is my daughter. She's seven. You know, I want her to play. And all the men were like, ah, you know, what do we do with a seven-year-old girl? Um, she's going to have to wear a, uh, like a breastplate, like the catcher's thing on her chest. And my dad was like, no, she's not. You know, she doesn't need to, no boy needs to do that. If they're fielding in the field, she can play and join the boys. So my dad helped coach the team and my sister played little league back in the, you know, the early times. So that kind of set the standard, right? You're, we're just here to all do it together. We're all athletes. We're all here in community. There's no separation. And when I talk to women about how they've been raised, you know, a lot of them will say, well, you know, the gender roles were very specific in my family. You know, women were in the kitchen and, you know, men were the breadwinners or, you know, they were told what their family culture was and they absorbed that, right, in order to thrive where they were. But there was never a time that I didn't think that I could achieve anything a man could achieve. And not because, and this is critically important, not because my dad said, you're as good as any man. He didn't have to say it. He lived it. He meant it. He showed it in every action that he had. And so did my mother. So Mm -hmm. I never grew up thinking I'm as good as a man. I never thought about it at all. I was, I was a great person and it didn't matter what my gender was. I could achieve anything I wanted and do anything I wanted. And it didn't have to be explicitly stated. It was understood. Wow. That's such a, it's such a powerful distinction you just made of, because there is often that mantra of like, you can do anything a man right. can do, but it's then it's all in reference. And what you're saying is the way that you were raised, there was this intrinsic message of, we're not talking about gender differences. We're all human right. and you're capable of anything you want, regardless of your gender. Like gender's not being and talked right. about. It wasn't something to overcome. Yes. It was just that wasn't like, it wasn't like, okay, you're, you're this, but you're still going to be good. No, no, man. You're just equal to everybody else, but it didn't have to be said. It was understood. So I grew up believing that and knowing that and knowing I could be as successful as anybody. And I think it kind of colored my career because I've, I've always been a, I've worked in the defense contractor space. I've never served in the military, but I have worked alongside people from the military my whole career. I've been in many environments where I was the only female in the room, but I wasn't thinking to myself, I'm the only female in the room. I was just there doing my thing, proving my worth, achieving as much as any man. And I didn't feel discriminated against or put upon for that because that innate confidence came from me. Mm-hmm. And I belonged in that room just as much as anybody sitting on either side of me. Wow. Amazing. And, you know, and I think a rare story too, Yeah, you know, and I, it's so good to hear this story because I'm sure some people have similar stories and then other people don't, but just to, to think about how that type of original imprinting has really shaped you yeah. and made a lot possible. It's inspiring. 
And, and to think that my parents, who they had no, um, you know, education, they didn't, didn't read, you know, all the books we read now about how yeah. to raise empowered females or thinking yes. about that. They just did it organically. Mm-hmm. And, and I just think that that's so amazing, right? It shows you when we don't let our culture influence us, when we let our intuition and our organic desire to just have a close, good family um, and our fairness come through, that, that that's what you can achieve. And that's pretty remarkable, I think. Yes, very remarkable. So, you know, I know that in the last several years, you've gone through a major transition and transformation through the yeah. catalysts of loss. And I want to get there. But before we do, just kind of building off of what you shared, I'm wondering what was it like for you? Cause I know you're, you got married, you have been working, you are a mother. And so what was it like for you as you went through some of those more, we could say gendered milestones Yeah. Um, in terms of the decisions that you made kind of leading up to when your husband died, like where were you at in terms of, of those choices and complexities as a woman? It's a great point. And I, I think in the way that I was so prepared to be just a human in the world, I probably was less prepared to be a female in the world when those pivot points came. So I met my husband at business school. We were getting our MBAs together. And certainly business school, at least in the mid-90s, where I went to school, was it was 22% women and the rest were men, right? So already you were kind of in that environment. And I met my husband there and we both got our degrees and went and pursued careers and then and came together, got married. About five years after we got married, we had our son, um, mm-hmm. Connor. And uh, we have a very famous kind of story we tell about how things go that gender direction, right? You know, we are, we're both hard-charging MBAs. We're going to achieve, achieve, achieve. But then you have your family and you have to make choices. And, you know, that's the beauty of a close partnership um, with your significant other is you make those choices together. So we had what we call our Costco conversation. We're sitting in the parking lot of the Costco Mm -hmm. and our son is sleeping in the back. He's probably less than a year old because as we all know, when you have a sleeping baby, you don't go anywhere. You just sit there because you're going to enjoy the peace and quiet of the sleeping baby. So my husband, my husband, Mike and I were having this conversation. Okay. We're at this pivot point. We both agreed that we couldn't have two hard-charging careers, right? And he was already kind of on a course for his career where he traveled more, and I was able to stay in town. I didn't have to travel with my job. And his income was growing to be larger than mine because of that flexibility that he had. So we kind of said, okay, this is, this is a pivot point. What are we going to do from here? We have to make a choice. And we made the choice in that car in the Costco parking lot that Mike's career would be the one that would grow and change and he would have the ability to travel and thus his income ability would grow. Mm -hmm. And I would still work because that's just how I'm wired. I would always be a person who worked, but I would keep my career in the federal space. And because we live in outside of DC, I wouldn't have to travel and I would be sort of the primary caregiver for Connor. And I remember feeling oh, like I, did I just give up my dream for that? Like, did I sacrifice Mm. something that I've been working for? Um, I knew it was the right choice and he knew that it was a sacrifice for me, but we knew together that it was the right thing to do. So on the flip side, like where that became a benefit, like where that was a loss, I mean, no doubt about it. I wasn't going to climb the career ladder like he was. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we, we had our second child, my daughter, Kendall, two years later, you know, we were kind of working our way through things. And when the children would have a hard time adjusting to something, a new grade, a new teacher, I was there on the ground with them every day, going through that with them mm-hmm. and, and just being there, like being in the real blocking and tackling parts of being a parent. And yeah. Mike was traveling or somewhere else. He wanted to be home with us. But he wasn't. He was serving clients. He had to travel. And that in my brain was the click. Like Mm -hmm. I had given this up so many years ago, given up that climbing the career ladder. But this is what I got. I still had a satisfying career, but I got to be there for my children every minute for when they needed me. And that I I never would have thought about myself that that would be so satisfying Mm -hmm. because I didn't know what being a mother was going to be like. But that, that is the essence to me of the joy of motherhood. Of course, it's those happy times when we're playing and having a great time, but it's those times when your children are struggling and you are alongside them for that part of the journey. That is so rewarding, you know, helping them get through, right? You're not 
helicoptering or fighting the battles for them. You're alongside them working it all through. And that to me, I just remember a moment in time when Connor was in about third grade, when he was just having some trouble with something and we were working it all through. I thought, this is it. Like, Mm -hmm. this is what I made that sacrifice for to be on the other side and to be able to hold his hand through it and be there for him. Yeah. I so appreciate you sharing this story because I think it is, it's such a passage that women who become mothers go through of needing to make different decisions and there's no right or wrong. And I guess I feel really curious given that you in a way, I mean, you guys did it very consciously. You, you, yeah. there was a lot of conversation. There was a lot of same pageness about it. But given that you ended up making the more normative gender decisions, yeah. I'm curious, how did you know that you were doing the right thing for you as an individual, as opposed to this, you know, this swamp that we can get swallowed under as women? Right. Like, right. How, what was it in your inner knowing or your inner guidance? that told you you were doing the right thing for you yeah. and your family. Right. Because there's so many times we make decisions for the collective, like our little community, our four, and for us, it was a four person community. How are you yeah. making that choice for you? I just knew, I, I think I took a couple of factors into consideration. I knew my personality and that I was able to compromise. Right. And, mm-hmm. and, and I knew it was a compromise and I knew my husband recognized the compromise mm-hmm. and I knew he would be grateful for it and understand it. And I also knew his personality and he was a hard charging, intense guy. And I don't think he could have been as happy making the compromise as I was making the compromise. I could live with that route more than he could. And that in the end would make our collective happier. Right. So when you're balancing all those things, you're saying, I mean, is he really the man for that job? Could he do it? Yes, he could. But what would that do to our marriage? And what would that do to us as parents? And I didn't think that that was the best route. I I knew I was better able to take it on. Now, that didn't mean I just turned the page. Oh, this feels great. Oh, we're just going to do it. No, there were moments where I was like, yeah, I can't believe I've done this. Here's here's where I am. Um, and I didn't feel that great about it, but that's why that seminal moment when that third grade year came around, I was like, no, I did the right thing. Mm. I made the right choice. We made the right choice together. And there were many times where Mike would, I would say, well, you know, on the way home from school today in the car, Connor asked me, did I believe in God? And Mike would say, well, could, did you just tell him to wait so we could talk about that when I got home? And I was yes. like, no, no, honey. Like, it doesn't work like that. When you're little, you have to talk about it in the moment. You have yeah. to go with the question. And he would be, you know, crestfallen that he missed this conversation about God in the car between, you know, a yes. five-year-old, a three-year-old and their mom. But that, you know, I had the power to parent like I wanted to parent when mm. he wasn't there. Right. Yeah. And we and and those are the consequences that he chose. So that was his gender normative choice, right? He yeah. missed those moments when he would have rather have been there. Yeah. I feel so touched by this on a number of fronts. And I just want to kind of highlight something for the listeners is that what I really hear is that both an acknowledge so there was an important acknowledgement between you and your husband as partners as equal partners but there was an also a really important inner acknowledgement that you did with yourself of like this is not all roses and sunshines there are losses going on here but you also really worked with considering the whole which i think is one of women's superpowers is like that kind of relational consideration of something bigger than just one person, but a whole system. And then you also really focused on looking for where the empowerment was. Yeah. I think Emma, you and I were just talking, we were both reading Untamed by uh, Glennon yes. Doyle. And, and you know, she talks about how there's so much so so much rage inside of women, like they've made compromises and they've made themselves smaller and they've fit into some box. I never felt that because the choices I made were choices. And when it felt yucky, I felt yucky. Like Mm -hmm. I let myself feel yucky. I would let myself have a conversation with Mike about it, about how it felt. And so it was always out in the open. It was never something like, well, I made this choice and nobody appreciates it. It was never like that for us. It was not all rainbows and unicorns for sure, but mm-hmm. it was, it was conscious and a choice. And I, and you know, we forget like when we're raising little ones, it's like, 
time gets really elastic, you know, and yes. you're like, this is, this is going on and on forever. And I, and I would have days where I would, I would say, especially on weekend days when things are really harried, I can't wait till Monday morning, like till, yeah. till I come back to work and things get normal and regular. But, you know, we have to know that that time when they're little, it doesn't last forever. Mm-hmm. And I knew I would come back to a time where I would have a strong career and I would have the, have, you know, that growth because I knew and was confident in my own potential. And I was just going to be in this time where I was juggling my children and my career and my husband for mm-hmm. a limited time or for a few years until, you know, until that worked its way out. Wow. It's so inspiring to hear you talk about it. I, I think, you know, I have a young child and, yeah. you know, a lot of these conversations are daily conversations in our household right now is roles and responsibilities and, you know, amounts of time and compromises. And yes. I'm just so touched by that, your ability to stay connected to the choosing And that's incredible that, you know, because it was out in the open, you didn't have this big buildup of rage and resentment, which can often happen in the heterosexual marriage paradigm. Yeah. Uh, So bravo to you and Mike for being role models really in, in doing it in a way where it worked for the whole, not that it was always easy, but that everyone at the end of the day was fulfilled. Yeah. And one of the great things is when I first met Mike, um, he really taught me how to communicate. So he was raised by a single mom and he was used to having that kind of relationship. And when we would, uh, in our dating life early on, you know, we would get into a fight about something and I would say, I don't want to talk about this. And he would be like, well, that's the craziest thing I ever heard. You know, so, <laughs> yes. so, so in, in that non-gender normative way, he's the one who helped me be open, you know, be open and understand the choices that were made because we communicated about everything because that's how he was raised. Amazing. So him bringing that to our relationship really transformed, transformed how I was able to be open about things. Yeah. Oh, that's incredible. I love knowing that. And that feels like a perfect segue. Um, if you feel ready to move on to talk about you and Mike and, yeah. Um, you know, the listeners heard in your bio about his passing several years ago, and I'm just so eager to learn from you and to hear the parts of your journey that you want to share about his death and what it's meant for you. Yeah. And I, I so appreciate the opportunity to talk about it because I just really have a strong, strong feeling that we here in America, we don't know how to talk about death and we don't know how to talk about grieving and we're afraid of all of those things. But I just want your listeners to understand that you can come through things and sorrow is intense and it will stay with you forever. But on the other side is also, you know, a feeling of aliveness and joy and love that you can't possibly imagine at the time. And I just, the more we can have discussions about death, you know, really about death, not all the euphemisms around death, Mm -hmm. you know, the more open we can be to our hearts and to our intuitions. Um, So my husband, Mike, uh, was a spectacular, handsome, um, intense guy. We were married for 18 years. Mm -hmm. And then in November of 2016, um, he died completely suddenly and unexpectedly of a heart attack. And so he was very, very healthy. And every, if he would have lined up a hundred guys and say, which guy would have the heart attack, he would be the least likely guy to have that, Uh, Mm -hmm. a real health nut, um, an exerciser and, and, and ate great because he was always thinking about his family. So he lost his mother, his beloved mother, um, when she was um, in her early 50s of breast cancer. So he always was very conscious about his health. Mm-hmm. So um, we were, you know, completely taken aback by this. And, and uh, the kids at the time were 11 and 13. Wow. And so, uh, and he was very, you know, just a great dad and so, so close to them. And, you know, in those early days, you come to realize a few really critical things how much your friends and family mean to you, you know, and how supportive they are of you. You come to realize the power of prayer. And I'm not religious, mm-hmm. but I have to say, hands down, I 100% believe in the power of prayer from any um, religious mm-hmm. spectrum. And then you also come to realize how much mystery there is in the world because there is no reason that my incredibly healthy 50-year-old husband um, died. Mm-hmm. And I never spent a minute being angry about it or kind of railing against anything about it. To me, this is just our human brains aren't meant to understand everything in this world. Mm -hmm. And his death um, 
unfolded and we are now the family we are. And, mm. you know, when you think about Cheryl Sandberg talks about this in her option B book and you think yeah. about a target, like who's at the center of the target, you know, your family, the four, the four of us, and now the three of us, and then, you know, your friends and family there and your colleagues and coworkers. And Mike impacted so many of those people when you think about that target in such an incredible way, so much so that after he passed and we had the funeral and so many people came, you know, hundreds of people came and everyone could tell me a story about what Mike Deagle had meant in their lives. Mm. So it was so, and my friends afterwards were saying, I mean, how are you still standing up? You're, and I said, I just had all these people tell me how fabulous my husband was. So mm-hmm. how can I, like, how can I shrink back from that? Mm. Right. And, and then the even more important part is, is you come to realize that you have to lead your family. Mm. So there is plenty of despair and there are plenty of times where you're laying on the bathroom floor crying as Liz Gilbert like says in her books, Mm -hmm. but you have to know that you are the model for your children. And I don't mean that in a pressure way. And I don't mean that to say, get over it because I don't mean that at all. Mm -hmm. I just mean they're watching you, right? Mm -hmm. And how you go forward is how they will go forward. And Mm -hmm. I said to them very distinctly, Daddy has already built the basement and the first floor of your house. And all we're going to do is finish off the second floor. Like that's mm-hmm. really all that's left. You are who you are from what daddy already planted in you. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what we have to finish off here. And I also said to them, we're going to go through the pain. We're going to live the pain. We're not going to avoid it or go around it. We're going to feel every possible feeling that comes along with it. And we're going to work our way to the other side. So the, you know, the experience for us has just been, has just been incredible. And it's no roadmap um, Mm -hmm. that you can kind of walk your way through. You kind of have to feel this organically and and work your way through it. And and it's a very individual thing. So I would never want people to ever think that they need to get over something. They have to grieve in their own way, but Mm -hmm. they have to also know that their, their children and their family and their friends they're holding them and taking care of them, but they're also watching them. And it's important as females, we think in the rest of our life to be models, right? To be models of, of strength. Mm-hmm. And in this critical time in my life, it was never more important than at that time. Mm. Wow. So what did you do in those more sort of crying on the bathroom floor moments or like, you know, those, those very interior private moments of despair and, overwhelm? What was it that helped you? Yeah. So one of the biggest things right off the bat is the kids wanted to go back to school. Like they, you know, the, my daughter, who's very wise, even at 11, she, mm-hmm. she said to me, well, what am I supposed to do? Sit around here watching all these grownups be sad, right? You know, she was like, get me out of here. Get me back to school with my people. Yeah. And my son felt the same way. They felt very cared for at their schools and their schools were amazing mm-hmm. and their friends taking care of them and the teachers and the administrators always watching out for them. So I worked at the time and my boss said, you know, you come back when you're ready. So that was such a blessing. You know, he just said, whenever you're ready, we'll take you back. Mm-hmm. And so I was able to have sort of like a, a, a few week time period mm-hmm. where I could just kind of sit and have my tears, right? Mm. And I could, uh, I actually spent a lot of time out in nature. There's where I live in Northern Virginia, there's a beautiful park called Great Falls Park along the Potomac. And I would just go out into the park and I would, I would cry while I was walking, which is is a completely acceptable thing to do, right? That you're, that you know, you're in nature and you know, somehow that that's taking care of you. I would spend a lot of time with my friends. So each of my individual friends would have something they brought to me in exchange, even if that was just a listening ear, like no one was in a rush to give me any kind of advice. Um, but, but they, they knew me, they knew me at my core. And Mm -hmm. so I could just kind of riff on ideas with them and they would be like, okay, well, you might want to think about it this way or, or they would just listen. And then I think the third thing that really helped me is, um, of course, there are a lot of great books about grieving out there, but I wasn't drawn to the ones that were, you know, talking about the stages of grief or things like that. And then those are wonderful and they may suit a lot of people. I was more drawn to what I call reading the grief canon. So that's mm-hmm. any kind of book that talks about somebody who has lost someone 
or somebody who's in the midst of dying or just in that kind of experience. So you start with the classic, which is C.S. Lewis, A Grief Observed. Mm-hmm. And it's such a small, like 50 page book, but so it has, I have underlined almost every passage in it. Wow. It's incredible. And then Joan Didion, um, you know, The Year of Magical Thinking. So incredible. And her experience is similar to mine. Her husband died at the kitchen table of a heart attack. Oh and then another one that's very, very similar um, is Elizabeth Alexander. She wrote something called The Light of the World. Mm. And it's excellent. And then I, I branched out from there to other books where people had lost children or where people had, or people themselves had cancer, like The Bright Hour or... Um, when breath becomes air, because, you know, they're going through those particular experiences. And then I just kind of drew a wide circle around that. And I would read, you know, sometimes when you're talking about death, you have to be gentle with the listener. Like, so Emma, you know, this story, so I don't have to be, I don't have to use euphemisms with you, but sometimes you have to say, Mm -hmm. you have to shield other people's feelings because that's how out of tune with death we are. So at first I would say to people, I'm reading the grief canon, but to my friends, I would say, I'm reading books about death. Because yeah. that's what I was doing because, because those experiences colored my experience. And I say this in, in, when I do management meetings at work too. I say to people, you can watch what I do and you will either decide, yes, I'm going to do exactly what she does or I'm going to do the exact opposite. You get as much from deciding who you don't want to be when yes. you watch people. Or, yeah. And so in reading these, the grief canon, I was able to take that away to, oh, what they tried, that wouldn't work for me. But this other person, that would. So rather than having a stages of grief book, which is in some ways proscriptive, okay, this is, um, I took the path of something being descriptive. Like Mm -hmm. they describe their story and their experience. And that to me, um, it colored how I had my reactions, but it also, of course, helped me feel not alone yes. because it's so universal like this. I'm sorry, it's going to happen to all of us, right? Yeah. In some way, shape or form. And knowing that universality exists and that people have come through the other side of it enough to write their story. That was incredibly helpful to me. Mm. I'm so I'm so struck by all of this and just want to kind of recapture. So it was time in nature, time with friends, and then these books of other people's stories and journeys, not like the typical self-help linear model of grief, but really coming to know yourself through the yeses and nos, the things that resonated or didn't of other people's stories. Exactly. It sounds like it just sounds like you had so much intuitive wisdom about what you needed during that time. Yeah, and it and I wouldn't say it was conscious awareness, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. It, it definitely was because there were other parts of my life that I um, I could tell that my brain wasn't really functioning, like to try to do the insurance paperwork or yeah. to try to go to probate court and have a discussion. Like oh I gosh. just realized something today that would take me, you know, one hour to do. I remember things taking like six hours because mm-hmm. I just, you know, because things weren't quite working, which is, which is completely Normal. understandable. Yeah. And I had a, a great um, woman um, who kind of coached me and she, she just said, during that period in time, you were in shock. Like people don't use that word about grief. They, they don't yeah. talk about that way, but it's, it's as if you had a traumatic injury. Like you are in shock for that totally. period, yeah. which I, and I now kind of refer to that as the acute phase because that's what you're going through. And I still remember my beloved friend, Cece, I was having lunch with her like maybe a couple of months in and we were talking about something and laughing. And I, I, I mm. kind of held my breath and I said to her, oh my gosh, I am starting to feel like myself again. Wow. And she said, I can tell, right? Mm. She was just there to like witness it because mm. witnessing this is so important, right? That's the other thing that our friends and family do. They witness mm-hmm. our experience. They witness our transformation. They're not trying to rush us along. And, and one thing I want to make really clear to your listeners, if you have friends that are trying to rush you along in your grief process, mm. you need better friends. Yeah. Right. And so we need to set ourselves up now to have the right kind of friends and the right yeah. kind of people in our lives so that when we do have tragedies that occur in our life, because we will, mm-hmm. you have the right people around you. So don't compromise. Think about your friendships. Think about what people, how your family supports you. Right. It's very important to build that now while you are strong and make good choices and not say, well, you know, she's an okay friend. And, you know, no. I mean, and I was very, 
draconian about people. You know, if people wanted to bring me food or, and I felt like it would just too, it was going to be too much energy. I would say no. Yeah. And, and they would be like, well, wait a second. I have this casserole for you. And I'd just be like, no, nope, that's okay. We're the kids and I are fine. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So you named Sue a lot of things that you learned, I would say, in the, in the wake of Mike's passing. Do you feel like something core transformed in you, like the Sue before he died and the Sue after he died? Yeah. So this is a great question. I actually don't feel that. Okay. I, I feel like what happened is I became an amplified version of myself. And mm-hmm. let me dig into that a little bit more. Just as we discussed these compromises that I had made mm-hmm. early on, you know, to, to help us raise our family in the best way possible. Whenever Mike died, suddenly I didn't have anybody to make a compromise with anymore. Wow. Right. So I, uh, and in fact, I joke around about this. I, that sort of rush of power of single parenthood decision making, right? Because I'm not divorced. I don't have to balance, you know, with a, with a spouse, with, with an ex-spouse. It's me. I, I suddenly became the, the sole decision maker. And my husband was incredibly involved in every decision and he wanted to pull apart every decision and really um, dig into it. He was kind of a perfectionist and that kind of thinker. Whereas I'm a very like jump and go kind of decision maker, but I, mm. I would slow myself down and we would talk through the decision and then we would make the decision. So I joke around now that I'm like the despot, like the dictator of my household. So <laughs> I became like the dictator and now I get to say mm. what happens. And in some ways um, that has really amplified my power right? Mm -hmm. My personal power and, and a, and a kind of a weird trade-off from losing my beloved. Now I become kind of the, the decider, the decider of everything. Mm -hmm. And and I say, I'm mad with the power of single parent decision-making, right? Because I do that now. Now I collaborate with my children. We make our choices together. Yeah. That freeing, that kind of putting that compromised um, decision-making or that path, that path evaporated. Yeah, and and so I think I actually became more of the person I would have been without the compromised path, mm. right? And and that shows in my decision making with the kids because there's a point after if you have a spouse that passes away, you say to yourself, "Well, what would my spouse want me to do in this decision?" Yeah. Well, yeah. and that, but you have to let that go after whatever is the right period for you. You have to let that go because your spouse isn't here. They, they're not watching the children grow and change. You can't make a decision. You know, Mike passed away in 2016. I can't sit here and say, well, what would Mike do? Because the kids are completely transformed from that point in time. Right. So, so you kind of have to watch for that and make the choices that you want to make now. So I've become in raising the children and in my career, Mm -hmm. um, the powerful, really powerful person I always knew I was, Mm-hmm. But I was in a bit of a compromise mm-hmm. uh, scenario and couldn't be. Yes. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. It feels really rich and almost like paradoxical in a certain way. Yeah. It's hard to capture, but it's like, I guess what I'm so struck by about you is your commitment to finding your power in all of these different situation. So it's like you found your power in the present moment, in the emergent process of what are we going to do about career and a baby in the back in Costco. You found your power there and it looked one way. And I'm sure there were many other moments yes. of that throughout your life. And and then to do it again in this other way of like, and, and holding the both and like, not yeah. that you're glad that Mike died so that you could be yeah. in the power and uncompromising in this way, but that there is this potency or freedom, some liberation that came with it as well, like with the grief. It doesn't make the grief any less so or the loss any Yeah, intense, completely. Any yeah. And because, and I, and this is hard for some people because they can't understand that paradox, right? There are things I have gained. Yes, I, I have lost the love of my life, right? Yeah. But how? But but in order to be the humans that we're supposed to be and serve in the way we're supposed to be, you know, we have to become that person. And so I have to put aside that loss and say, what have I? What have I gained? And there's a um, there's a quote from a gentleman called Caleb Wild, and he says, you know, death's hands are not all bony and cold. 
mm-hmm. right? There are things that mm-hmm. transform your life, right? And we were kind of talking about that transformation. And in some ways, especially in the year or two after Mike died, there was so much going on in my brain because I had more time for contemplation and for reading yeah. that I felt some, somehow superhuman, like something had been burned off, right? Wow. And I was now you know, totally myself in the world and facing this incredible challenge. But that is what, mm. that is what real pain and real sorrow will do. You are going through the fire. And as Glennon Doyle says in her book, you realize you're fireproof, right? You can make it through. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean it's not painful and it's still painful today. And there's not a week that goes by that I don't have tears over something about Mike's loss. Oh, but yeah. I, but at the same time, when I come through those tears, I feel so alive. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. I was going to ask, you know, what, what does still feel hard about his loss and however micro or macro, like what are those moments that bring you to tears? Yeah, it's, I mean, and, and you know, memory is, is a powerful thing, but as we know about memory, memory is less about pushing play on the VCR tape and it's more about this personal narrative that we've created over time, right? So. Yeah. I don't believe in time heals all wounds or any of these, any, any of the trite things like that, but time does transform your memory, right? Mm -hmm. And I can, Mike now lives in my heart in a way that Mm -hmm. is so spectacular because when you're not kind of arguing about who's going to go to the store and get the milk or that you forgot to pick up the dry cleaning, (laughs) you can see your partner for who they are, this spectacular Mm -hmm. person. So Mm -hmm. all of that is cleared away now. And, and I love Mike more today then even when we were married, because all of the wear and tear of regular marriage kind of goes away. So I'm yeah. grateful for that side. But what I miss the most is I miss my special person. Like mm-hmm. I don't, I don't miss being married because the kids and I, we've got it figured out. We have tremendous help. My mother, my brother-in-law, my friends, my sister, like our family is fantastic, right? We have the help that we need. So I don't miss the being married. I miss um, my special person. I miss Mike in yeah. my life. And uh, I said, you know, at the beginning, I didn't get angry when he first died because I was like, this is the mystery of life. But I find myself actually now at the thought of like having to go out on dates with people that I don't know who aren't as spectacular as my husband. Yeah. That's what makes me angry. I'm like, I can't, I had a special person. Yeah. And now I have to, I, you know, I don't have to, but now you know, the thought of having to go through that again, whenever I had had my guy, Mm. that that's what I miss the most. Totally. And yeah, I, it's, I'm so impacted by this description of how in death, the, like the, the contractions of our humanity, you know what I mean? Like those little personality quirks or irritations or just ways that we rub each other that are so unnecessary, but seem to be a part of (laughs) that. Like they, they all fall away. And then this more pristine, like essence of who Mike was gets to remain in your memory and your heart. Completely. I understand him so much better now. And I'm like, oh, now I know why he would act like that. Oh, that makes complete sense to me. Like, as we've talked about upbringings and things, you know, the gender ideas, I'm like, oh, oh." and and there are definitely times where I wish, you you go through a time where you say to yourself, oh, I was just a terrible wife. I could have done all these things better. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm past that phase, but I do sometimes feel like I wish I could have given him more grace right Mm -hmm. when we were married. So it's something for all of us who still have partners to think about. How can you step back and give your partner more grace just in the relationship that you're in today? Totally. I love that invitation. And, and I also just want to acknowledge the, the loss of your special person and the vulnerability of dating and that, that like, absolutely. And I love that you're giving yourself permission to be angry now. About, <laughs> yeah. about the things that you're naturally angry about, you know, even though you weren't a few years ago. And yeah, um, just, I, I so respect the range that you're willing to give yourself in, in this whole journey. It's really, you know, I want to highlight that for listeners that I think one of my impressions about your strength and your resilience, a lot of it has to do with your comfort with hard places. Yeah. Not shy away to not, you know, stuff those conversations under the rug, but to really be in them, both in yourself and with your loved ones. It sounds like yeah, for sure, incredible. 
so much of feeling the emotion, right? We want to we want to run from these emotions, but I think as we observe, they're just going to wait for us, or they're going to fester into something else. And I'm not saying it's pleasant, right, to be in the midst of deep sorrow. Yeah. Um, but it's funny what I realize now, like having a meditation practice and being able to kind of observe myself a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And I was just telling my friend Frank this the other day. I um, sorrow is now a feeling that I am used to feeling. So I know Mm. how sorrow feels physically. I know how it feels, the pressure behind your eyes before you're about to cry, what that feeling in your chest feels like. And then you do the cry and you move to the other side. And I know what that feels like because I have a lot of experience with sorrow. But other emotions like shame or embarrassment um, Mm. or anger, I don't have that same relationship with. So they're harder for me. And yes. now that I feel a lot more in general, just from, from my experience, I just have opened up the floodgates. I feel everything. Now I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm so not good at, at dealing with this shame or this embarrassment because yes. I haven't had that emotion quite as much as I've had sorrow. So I think if we have faith in ourselves and we know we come through these emotions and they're going to happen and we actually can, I don't want to say get better at them, but get better at observing them in ourselves and yeah. having that wash through us and know, oh, yeah, we're going to come out on the other side. And again, we're going to be more alive. That's what they give you. That's what emotions give you. Feeling them gives you more aliveness on the other side, in addition to the empathy and all the other important things that come along with it. It's, yes, so beautifully articulated. How did you learn, like the way you just described being with sorrow? I know you were reading a lot and I'm like, did you do psychotherapy? Did you do coaching or spiritual work? Like, how did you develop this capacity? Yeah, so I did not, like, I wasn't against psychotherapy in any way. And I've certainly used it at other points in my life. But Mm -hmm. I, the thought of having to describe Mike and my grief story to somebody I didn't know and kind of start over again. Yeah. When I had these friends who really understood me, right? Mm-hmm. And so I would say to myself, okay, I'm feeling this way today. Do I call Luann or Cece or Bill? And I, like in my mind, my friends kind of have, oh, I'm feeling this way. So I'll have breakfast with Luann and she'll yes. talk to me about this and that's how, and I know I'll feel better. Like, so, so Amazing. that I could identify each. So that was sort of my form of psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. And then in addition to reading just the books about death or the grief canon in general, I definitely would read, um, meditation books or, um, you know, Richard Rohr is one of my favorite. He's this Franciscan you know, based in New Mexico. Oh, um, yes. He is incredible. Like he just has an incredible viewpoint of the world. And, and I like to say to people, there is no spiritual tradition that doesn't have something for me, mm-hmm. whether that's yoga or Buddhism or Catholicism, or even like the, the classics like Seneca. Seneca writes a lot about death, yeah. you know, from all. And so I would pick all of those up. And so I would keep one of those by my bedside all the time. And I would just read, you know, a couple pages of that to level set me. And then the latest one is David White. He's a poet based in yes, Washington, right? Yeah. He is incredible. But that, like, he talks about he's got this book called Consolations, which is just the best. So I keep like 10 copies of Consolations because when anybody has a loss, I give them a copy of Consolations because Mm -hmm. the way he describes words like despair, Mm -hmm. like, or, um, you know, and, and he's just like, this is a resting place. Like despair is just, you will feel this. It's okay. It's a place to be for a while. And sometimes you need a shield and a soft Mm -hmm. place to land while you're working your way through it. So all of these spiritual teachers, I mean, you know, I have a bookshelf full of them. I definitely yeah. did a lot of spiritual reading to kind of open up. And you just have so many aha moments, like this yes. conversation with sorrow that I had with Frank. I was like, oh my gosh, I actually, oh, I know how to feel this feeling I know now. sorrow, yeah. It's, it's and crazy. it's empowering too, the way you describe yes. it. And then, and then that awareness of okay, because I've worked with and visited something so frequently, I've gained confidence around it. Whereas maybe with shame or embarrassment, you don't have that same confidence. Yes. So again, it's like, it's an empowerment. I mean, this is the thing I'm so struck by with you and your story is like, who would think like, oh, it's empowering to know how to deal with sorrow, but it it is. And so (laughs) few of us know how 
deal with it. You know, we just want to run the other way when it comes. Right. And, it's an, it's, yeah, I never thought about it that it's, it's empowering to cry. Yeah. And all of us are like, I never cry. Like if, if anybody tells me that now, like my brother-in-law is just like, I don't cry. And I'm like, that is a mistake. Now I'm very <laughs> like, I'm like an evangelist. I'm just, no, 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 that is wrong. It has to be the opposite, right? You yeah. have to be able to cry to get through that. It's like to feel it. So it, and I don't know. I just feel, I feel at this point in time, having sort of spent my young life trying not to feel anything yeah, and spent now being 51 years old and kind of feeling it all, mm. um, that we just, we have to feel it because that's the way to the other side. And I think some people worry, especially in a grief circumstance. And I think about this too. They worry, they say to themselves, if I let myself go down yeah. into the abyss, I'll never come back out. Yeah, there's no right now. Right. I will be in a, like a depression, you know, and you would understand more about this than me. Right. And I, I, I do worry because, you know, some people, we're all, we're all chemically different, right. And yes. all that hits us, but I really feel, and David White speaks so much about this, that you have to come to the bottom and there will be times where you will come back out. Like the, my favorite line in, in the C.S. Lewis book is, um, you know, we naturally ask ourselves when we lose a loved one, uh, is Mike there? Like Kendall, my daughter and I, you know, she was 11. She, she said, you know, do you think daddy is around? Is he with us? Is he somewhere? And, mm-hmm. and we would ask our, our family, hey, do you feel anything? And our beloved Aunt Judy, you know, wow. she, she, she said, well, sometimes I feel like, you know, he's touching my face or he's with oh. me. And then, and then Kendall turns to me and she's like, well, what's he doing with Aunt Judy and not me? And I was like, you know, no, honey, I don't think it's a zero sum game. Like, I think daddy is, he's with us. And this is kind of the mystery conversation. So C.S. Lewis, he married very late in his life to an American woman and she had cancer and passed away. And so in A Grief Observed, he says, um, the minute I stopped like trying to reach for her, Mm. she meets me everywhere. And he said, the word meet, he doesn't mm-hmm. mean, you know, face-to-face or a tap on the shoulder. And I don't mean that either. Yeah. But when you're, when you're not striving for something any, anymore, you see the mystery in everything. And I know Mike is with me, you know, not in some very explicit way, but in a way that I know in my heart is there. And, yeah. and I want people to be open to that mystery and however their um, intuition tells them, because that's one of the big things that has really saved me. You know, whenever I kind of came through a crisis of faith about after he died and what was our marriage really about. And I just had moments in time where I knew, no, it's okay. I had friends send me emails or the pastor that married us told me a story, you know, all of these things like, no, 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 it's all good. He loves me. He's there. And, and, uh, the gentleman who married us, his name is Craig Barnes. He, he, uh, runs the Princeton Theological Seminary now. And he had sent me a letter after he found out that Mike had died and he said, the best thing is you get to keep the love, mm. right? Yeah. And so that's always just like so consoling, however that love yeah. lives in me and the children. So, so beautiful. Thank you for sharing all that. It's really profound. Yeah, mm. we've been very blessed. I mean, it's, it's a terrible thing. We don't wish it on anyone. We don't wish it on us, right? But we, yeah. have to, we have to move forward. We have to have a conversation about death. The children and I talk very openly about it. You know, so yeah. many people, they don't want to talk about your loved one. You know, they, they want to be like, hey, Sue, and like talk about everything else that's happening in Except my life. Except for Mike. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, uh, and I was just reading this lovely book. Um, Hisham Matar wrote it. It's called A Month in Siena. And, he's, mm. and he had lost his father. And he's talking to a friend, a new friend of his, and he says the most profound thing you can say to anybody who's lost someone. He says to her, tell me about him. Tell me about your father, because that's all any of us want to do. I just want to brag about Mike and talk about him and talk about how awesome he was. It's not, if you ask me, you know, tell me about him. I'm not going to suddenly remember that he died. As if you've forgotten. forgotten. You're right. I'm sad. No, 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 no. I want to talk about him. And I wanted to talk about him from day one. So if Mm. we really want to do a kindness to people who have lost someone, that is what we should do. We should ask them to tell us about their loved one. That's the impact. Thank you for sharing that because, you know, I myself, I think like many of us, I can struggle in certain, like feeling this deep empathy when, when a yes. loved one loses someone important to them. And I think yeah. in, in my, the privacy of my office, when I'm a psychotherapist, I'm much more readily saying, well, tell me about your mother, tell me about your father, tell me yeah. about your wife and, or your husband. And, um, 
but to, to make that invitation more available, like just in normal human interaction, yes. of course, reading cues and attuning to the situation <laughs> and course. everything. But yeah, that feels like such an important instruction for all of us around like not, not walking on eggshells around bringing that person up or yeah. um, assuming that if we do that, like if we take a misstep that somebody can't say, you know, I don't want to talk about that or I don't, I don't yes. want to actually, it's too painful to reminisce right now. Right. But, but yeah. letting people know that we're really thinking of them and thinking of that person who died. Yeah. Mm. Wow. So I have just a couple more questions okay. before we wrap up. And um, this has been such a rich conversation, Sue. I'm really like, I just feel, my heart feels really open and um, been I love you even more than when I first, <laughs> like, I'm like, I got to hear so much more, you know, than in our yeah. just sort of passing conversations. So um, I, I'm curious, and I know a little bit about this, but just sort of what's on the horizon for you in terms of your next levels of development as a woman, as a person, and what you're excited about moving forward? Yeah. So I, I think you and I had an exchange about talking about like, what do we want for the world, right? As you put your podcast together and you think about your listeners, you know, you have something that you want to manifest, right, by doing yes. that. And yeah. so for myself, I, what I want for the world is to be able to have a conversation about death that people are not running away from and that people understand that yes, death is filled with sorrow, but there is also so much life and love and joy that comes along with it when you realize how supported you are by your friends, by your family, by the universe. And, and there is so much aliveness. Like I have never felt more alive in my life, you know, after, after Mike's loss. And this is, you know, this is what it has taught me. And I has, I have let it teach me. So I'm in the middle of writing a memoir right now, but I also just want, I want this to be my platform, right? This is what I want to convey to the world. And I, and actually with the whole, with the whole pandemic going on right now, I see so much of what I went through as an individual, like, uh, why did this happen? When's it going to end? How's this going to feel? You know, we're communally feeling that now um, with, with the pandemic, not knowing all those things. And because it's a grief, it's a grief of what our life used to be like before this descended upon us. Totally. And so having that conversation, not just to help sort of individuals with their grief, which is incredibly important and really where my heart is. I, I want to help those who have both lost, but I want to help the rest of society embrace them mm-hmm. and have the conversation and give them what they need and help them not be isolated. So that's, I hope, sort of my future. It's such a beautiful mission and so necessary, like really, really necessary, both at this time and just in general. Yeah. And the other thing that just clicked in as I was listening to you is how amazing it is that you're going to write, you're writing a memoir when books and particularly people's stories really was like one of the most critical things along your journey. Right. So that's just such a beautiful full circle thing, how you're going to create a book that another woman or man or whoever child is going to hold in their hands someday to help them in their encounter with death. Yeah. I am so indebted to these memoirists because they've taught me so much. They've developed me. They've kind of grown me. You know, there's a a sort of a metaphor where um, whenever uh, Michelangelo was creating the David statue, right? He said, David was already in the block. He was just chipping away to make David come out. And in so many ways, you know, Mike's death, has been, you know, the Michelangelo of, of Sue, right? Of, of what was going to, but, but all these other things have as well, these memoirists and writing their stories has also, you know, created who I have become and am becoming and will forever be, you know, becoming because we never kind of land on who we are. Thank God. Yes. Thank God. <laughs> and you, and you are so alive. I just want to reflect that to you. Like, this this insight, this realization you've had through journeying with death and the aliveness that comes, like you you are such an embodiment of that aliveness and that grace. And um, it's inspiring. It's inspiring to sit with you. Well, Emma, I just appreciate you listening to my story because I really, you know, you know, I feel very passionate about about all of these topics. Yes. Thank you for sharing it with us. And my last question is um, if I handed you a microphone. And you knew that all women across the world, background, age, like identity, all of it, that they would hear and receive your message. 
what would you say to them? Yeah. So I would say to them, no matter how you were raised to be or how your culture taught you to be, you have all the strength you need inside of you. Right. So believe in yourself. And if you can't believe in yourself, find friends that will believe in you and they'll carry you along for the ride because you are far stronger than you think. Thank you so much, Sue. I feel full body chills of inspiration. (laughs) And I just, I really look forward to connecting with you again in the future and I'm sending so much strength and creative juice to you as you write your memoir. And thank you for your time and sharing your story and your heart with us. My pleasure, Emma. Thank you so much. Thanks for all you're doing. Thank you so much for listening to the Women Today podcast. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and take a moment to leave a rating and a review. The more five-star ratings this podcast gets, the more easily women around the world will be able to access this valuable information. Remember, we each have our unique role to play in this collective uprising for women all over the world. Whoever you are and wherever you find yourself in this moment, there is a deep intelligence to your particular place in the wider web, and we need the specific experiences, insights, and gifts that only you carry. I am sending you my heartfelt strength and support for wherever you are on the journey, and I'll look forward to connecting again next week.